All right, great. Well, well, Dermaine, we uh, we're lucky today. We've got two great guests. I know. Why don't we? Uh, well, I'm excited to have uh, Mike Colino join us again. It's been a little over a year now. Yep. Um, so welcome back, Mike. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Jeff, do you want to? Yeah. So, <laughs> guys, we have done this before. Don't worry. We don't always. <laughs> uh, and we've also got we've also got Len Hardy uh, from Northern Trust, who's going to tell us a little bit about his journey. Uh, Len, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll get into into the story. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Len Hardy. I'm from the Northern Trust. Uh, we are a um, large financial institution that is headquartered in Chicago. Uh, three main businesses: asset management, asset servicing, and wealth management. Um, my role uh, now is I am the director of uh, both public and pl- uh, private cloud uh, engineering and infrastructure, um, DevOps, uh, the thing we use for DevOps, and then business unit type uh, application slash infrastructure architecture. So uh, from the cloud perspective, uh, I have um, sort of the enablement, um, the engineering, uh, and the DevOps sort of uh, enterprise practices around that. Awesome. Uh, so, so why don't we start with a little bit of context? Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your business. And you know, we, when we talk to customers, there's usually some kind of you know driving force behind their efforts to to modernize how they how they use software. It's usually some combination of competitive pressures uh, with you know desire to to better serve your customers. Just maybe lay some context down for us uh, in terms of uh, your journey. Yeah. So, so our journey into cloud native of application development started about two years ago and um, at the time we were not uh, in a position uh, nor were our clients uh, to do anything in the public cloud that's obviously changed we can get into that a little bit later but um, we were looking for um, a platform um, or an architecture if you will um, that would allow us to re-engineer a lot of our core applications as well as uh, continue with the digital offering that we had uh, had going on. Um, we, we knew that we needed to change um, to a more agile um, development methodology. Um, we thought that we wanted to change, and I think it's proven out that it was the right decision that we wanted to change to a uh, 12-factor microservices-based um, cloud-native um, development and runtime environment. Um, and we wanted to sort of start preparing um, the organization, and, and by that I mean the development organization, the architects, uh, the infrastructure folks in the business for, you know, sort of an eventual uh, journey into public cloud and what that meant. So about two years ago, uh, we brought in Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, we sent a couple of teams uh, at the time to um, Pivotal Labs over in the merchandise market here in Chicago. Uh, they went through the whole... Um, the whole thing uh, with extreme programming and paired programming and uh, and bringing over product owners and, and working through a couple of applications there uh, and deployed those on uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry that we, my group, had uh, built out, uh, installed, uh, engineered, and uh, operate within our uh, two data centers here in the Chicago suburbs. So that was sort of the beginning. Um, now, uh, with two years later, uh, we have about uh, 600 developers on that platform, um, and they are are supported by the original four DevOps engineers that we brought on board. Um, so, you know, the way that we do that is, is you know, like you guys have said this before, everybody says this, you know, relentless automation. So we could not have four guys supporting 600 developers without building a lot of things um, either into the platform or around the platform or, th- or through tooling that we, we put in place. So we've grown uh, significantly uh, on the platform. We have, you know, many, many, many services in 
uh, production, many in um, different testing environments, and we've got a lot, lot of activity on the platform today. That's great. And that's, those are some nice sort of uh, bookends, right? Where you started, where you are today, and now we've got to figure out all the other books on the shelf in between. Um, I am curious to go way back to that initial engagement um, at Pivotal Labs in their, that beautiful Chicago office that they have. Um, what was that first application? Can you share a little bit about what was it doing? Was it something that was getting refactored? Was it something new that needed to be built? What part, which of those three businesses that you mentioned was it supporting? Yeah. So it was, it was what I would call an asset. It was an asset servicing. Um, I wouldn't even call it an application. I guess I'd call it a platform. It, basically what we were doing is we were modernizing the core of the asset servicing business that we have today. And uh, the application in question or the, uh, the platform that we were talking about uh, developing is something that we were calling TranHub or Transaction Hub. And really it was sort of a real-time platform running on Pivotal Cloud Foundry that t took transactions um, coming into the bank from any number of different uh, scenarios. So they could come from the SWIFT network, they could come from clients, uh, they can come from other uh, applications uh, running within our data center um, or things like that. And it, it, it was the central place where they were pulled in, validated, uh, reformatted into a common format and then delivered out uh, to the application that was specifically responsible for processing it. So it was sort of the core around all of the asset servicing uh, uh, applications, clients, and um, uh, networks uh, that we do business with. So basically, we're looking for uh, fast time to market. We're looking at uh, horizontal horizontal scalability. Uh, we are looking at developer productivity. We are looking at um, very high reliability. Uh, all the things that you get from cloud native um, development patterns and from Pivotal Cloud Foundry specifically in this case. And, and what about, let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, I guess some of the process and culture issues you have to deal with uh, as, you, as you transition from uh, kind of where you were to where you are today. Um, you talked about automation and having a relatively small group uh, of four supporting the platform and uh, supporting all those developers. Uh, I imagine that's a very different scenario than, than previously. Uh, can you talk about how you, how you approach some of the organizational and, and process challenges you had? Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So I don't know how much you guys know about the Northern Trust, but we're about a 130 year old company, um, financial institution in Chicago. So um, 130 years old, um, there's a lot of legacy out there. So there's a lot of uh, in, in air quotes, there's a lot of culture. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, bedded down thought process and all of that had to be changed uh, in order to, to move forward with what we wanted to do here from a cloud native development perspective. And I guess the way that we, uh, the way that we approached that at least initially was, so, so the four, the four develop, uh, DevOps engineers, uh, infrastructure engineers, if you want to call them, that, that, that we have that are responsible for the operation and the animation of Cloud Foundry were hand chosen. And basically, um, we picked them um, for a, a diversity of skill sets. Uh, we have a person on the team who is probably one of the best um, Java architects that um, we have here at the Northern Trust. We have someone who is a, a manager and a technical manager who managed um, uh, web, uh, mobile, uh, database development for a number of different um, very high profile platforms. Uh, the third member of the team 
uh, worked on our, what you would call our tiger team, I guess, that attacked problems from a variety of different areas. So very strong on networking, very strong in infrastructure, operating systems, something like that. And then uh, last but certainly not least, we have a new college graduate uh, with from a comp side program here in Illinois who is uh, very technical and, and very uh, interested in learning new things, could pick up things very, very quickly and was, was, was very diverse in sort of the skill sets that uh, she brought to the problem. So the first thing we did is I think we picked uh, a cross-functional, um, uh, very enthused, uh, very forward-looking team in order to stand up the, the product, to support the product, and to build automation around the product. Uh, secondly, what we did is we handpicked the teams that went to Pivotal Labs, uh, right? You know, the old, uh, I guess it's Martin Fowler, you have to be 42 inches tall to ride the ride. Well, we didn't want anybody that was three foot tall in the initial uh, in the initial implementation. So we basically handpicked a team of uh, pretty good rock stars and sent them out uh, to Pivotal. And, and we rotated several of these teams through. And when we brought them back, uh, we sat them down with... Um, I don't want to say legacy teams, but we sat them down with teams that hadn't been through the program, um, and we tried to sort of infect or infuse those existing teams with that same thought process and that same methodology that they learned uh, at, at, at Pivotal Labs. Now, in terms of the automation, you know, we went head-to-head uh, -head and tooth and nail with our control officers, uh, with our auditors, uh, with our regulators, uh, and basically proved to them that what we were putting in from an automation perspective um, was probably more secure and more compliant than the four to six to eight different manual steps that were in the process in the past. So it was an education process for uh, for the people on the compliance and the audit and the risk and the control side, but they really stepped up too. Once we were able to show them, you know, we're going to allow an application developer to start and stop a service by themselves in production but in the background, we're going to automatically put in the ServiceNow ticket, and we're going to make sure all the documentation is in there, and it's all consistent. It's all of a specific format, um, and it's going to be better than if somebody manually puts a ticket in, and you know you get you know run-on sentences, and you got inaccurate information, and you get somebody just pushing a button in order to get the ticket completed. So the minute we were able to prove that what we wanted to do was in fact more um, compliant than what we had from you know, 15 manual steps in the past, everybody sort of jumped on board. And we're extending that now into some other things that we're doing as well. What do you think was the turning point in your conversation with that compliance risk and audit and control team? Where, because you mentioned that they've really stepped up, but it was an education process. Yeah. Can you think of like a moment where it seemed like things clicked and accelerated with that team? Well, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Let me get to that. I think I think what you I think what we found, and I, this is probably true for any um, organization that's been around been around for a while, is the controls uh, that were in place uh, were all interpretations of things that had been passed down through through the ages and were pretty much uh, uh, word of mouth among people mm -hmm. or uh, controls that were stacked on top of each other because things had potentially failed in the past, right? So. You know, maybe in the past there was a control where I had to verify that two numbers matched and then somebody didn't do it right one time 10 years ago and they added two more controls on top, right? So basically what we had to do to make them sort of see the light on how this was going to happen is sort of unwind all of that uh, folklore and, uh, and hearsay and telephone tag in terms of why these were put together in the first place and get right down to what is the control for and what is the purpose of it? And then as soon as we got that and got people to agree on that and have a common understanding of that, we could very, very easily automate that and then show 
you know, through, through, through hard numbers and screens and, and, and tickets that are out there on service now, how we were able to automate that and, and, and actually satisfy the control, but without the reams and reams of overhead. So I think it was really just a, a, a pulling around, pulling out the actual purpose of the control, eliminating everything around it, and then showing how we were going to solve it. That's interesting, and I, I love that kind of expression you used of unwinding folklore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, although I can imagine, you, you know, that's not something you can walk up to your compliance team and be like, I understand you have some folklore, and I'd like to unwind <laughs> it. Um, that, may, <laughs> that may get things off the wrong foot. You know, the, the, thing main, the, thing, the thing is, is that the, 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 the control officers, only all they do is they hand you the actual document that has the technical control uh, written down and then the implementation of that is always left up to the people that are either building the application or the business side or or some other people that had oversight over it so once we could sort of distill down what that actual document said and make it practical and then show them how we were going to do that in a very practical way they didn't really care about the folklore it's not really their folklore it's more the people that get that get audited that people are asking questions of, and it's like, well, I do these six or eight, ten manual things, and here that's what proves that this is right, as opposed to you know here here's an automated approach and and here's a number on a screen, and that's what proves it's right. Okay, that's interesting. That that's helpful. I think that it's not the folklore from the compliance team; it's the folklore of the people who are receiving the audits. Yeah. yeah. So the implementers. Yeah. Okay. So then, does it? Does it come down to like, you know, the way that like some even some event storming activities happen, right? You've got to get everyone in the room, which is hard, right? Scheduling is hard, yeah. um, but we, we need to all live, get physically in the room together and just start to, to talk through each of these things until we get that common understanding. Is, is that what it looks like or what does it look like when you... So how, yeah, so how we did it is we had we had it's it's a it's a give and take and it's it's a um, uh, it's a negotiation basically. So so the way that we did it is we took um, one of the controls that were um, in scope for you know a specific thing and we actually had somebody that on the application side or on the platform side who, who read the control and documented what he thought it meant in English and in practical manners on, in like six or eight bullet points. You know, this could be like a 10 page control. And he said, okay, what I got out of this is I need to do a B C and I have to prove D. So we started with that. And then we started taking it around to other people that actually had a, had a, had a, uh, a buy-in somehow for the process. And we said, do you agree with this? Does this 10-page control really only mean I need to do this, these six things? That's where the debate was. You know, and it probably wasn't, didn't end up being the six things that we started with, but it wasn't the 47 things either. It was somewhere in between. And as soon as we had a common understanding and everybody could nod their head and sign off, you know, the control officer, um, the developer, uh, the architect, the platform owner, the people that support our ITSM applications, if all of those people were on board and signed off that, these were the six things we have to do. Then all we had to do was automate it, right? That was the simple part. Mm-hmm. And so, Mike, when, when, and how did Solstice kind of enter the picture? Or maybe Len, you should give your version of the story first, and and then Mike can elaborate from there. No, my, no, Mike can go. Solstice was a a, a development partner from from our digital perspective. Uh, in a lot of cases, they did a lot of UI UX stuff uh, with our what we call our passport products, which is our uh, 
our web-based um, portal type products and our in our digital uh, uh, mobile offerings for both um, retail clients uh, and corporate clients. So they, uh, Solstice was a partner with our internal development uh, folks on uh, designing and developing those things. Yeah, and Solstice has been around for roughly 18 years, uh, and our first client, oddly enough, was Northern Trust. So we've been working consistently with Northern Trust for about two decades now. Uh, as Len mentioned, uh, our primary focus has been in the sort of external customer-facing applications, uh, and many of those have been uh, running on legacy portal technology platforms uh, since their inception in initial creation. And so uh, once the uh, corresponding architecture had been proven out, the platform had been stood up, uh, these are the, the applications that were sort of first tagged to be moved over off of the portal technology onto Pivotal Cloud Foundry. So ultimately, we are as, as development partners of the Northern Trust customers of the, the platform and the services that it provides to its developers across the ecosystem over at Northern Trust. Uh, my particular area of focus um, historically has been on enterprise architecture. Uh, that's a group that I used to lead here at Solstice. And in many cases on these Northern projects, we would um, collaborate with Len and his team. Uh, and then oddly enough, from a timeline standpoint, as Solstice looked at uh, cloud partners in the, in the landscape roughly around uh, 24 to 36 months ago. Uh, that's where our partnership with Pivotal started on a very similar timeline where Northern, uh, again, one of our longest running customers uh, had been evaluating the platform and, and had selected to actually bring it in house and stand it up. So, um, you know, a, a perfect marriage in terms of, you know, the, the partnership from uh, not only a Northern to Solstice standpoint, but back from uh, a Solstice to, to Pivotal standpoint in the sense that we could come in and help uh, Northern as a development partner, uh, move legacy workloads onto the new platform. Yeah, Mike, it's funny you mentioned the the length of the relationship. I remember a time in one of the old buildings we used to be in over on Canal Street with Jay sitting in a sitting in a, a, a little cubicle and just actually pounding out code himself. So that was a long time ago, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Jay, <laughs> our former, or uh, should say, our initial uh, CEO and, and founder, and now he's actually the CEO of the. Uh, of the public parent company that owns a space in the UK. So, yeah, the, the relationship with Northern Trust, um, as well as the, um, you know, just the, the, the significant people, especially those in leadership positions still here at Solstice who've been here from the beginning, uh, all of them have worked uh, at some point in time on significant um, endeavors over at Northern Trust. Yeah, and speaking of trust, talk a little bit about building that trust over time between a, uh, a services provider such as yourselves, uh, a company like Northern Trust, who's been around for, well, I think you said, uh, 130 plus years. Uh, does the length of time of that relationship really help when it comes to working on these types of strategic initiatives? And, and how do you build that trust over time? I can take it first. I mean, I, I've been at Solstice myself for seven years, so I, I've come in um, sort of after the relationship uh, has been stood up, but at the same time, every year, um, you know, it seems like we're in, in newer areas of the organization 
over there. Um, and so it's definitely a relationship that has grown and evolved uh, so much to the point now where uh, I think it's very interesting when Solstice holds its Bring Your Kids to Work Day, uh, there's actually a lot of northern um, alert, northern stakeholders that actually uh, bring their kids uh, over to the Solstice offices for a couple hours, uh, usually in the afternoon each year. So it just talks to you know how close the relationship um, has sort of blossomed and matured too. But um, I think the other thing too is that uh, Northern very much has its sights set on the future and understands the value of sort of digital craftsmanship uh, all the way from sort of the top of the stack all the way down to the platform itself. And so I think there's just a, a general alignment of, uh, again, where we think both organizations going, and so uh, it's just a really great relationship for us to again sort of care, nurture, and move forward uh, collectively as we as we look to the future. So, what I heard out of all that was that Northern Trust would trust you with their children. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I guess I would say, you know, I'll, I'll chime in on that a little bit. I, I think, you know, when it comes down to it, it's, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is business and they have to deliver and they've, they've delivered. Right. So, you know, as much as I like Mike and, you know, we know Jay and we know everybody over there, but you know, they need to continue to deliver and they've done that. So, I mean, that's what sort of, that's what sort of, you know, keeps people, uh, together, keeps people doing, doing business together, you know, and keeps relationships strong is, you know, the ability to trust each side to deliver what they say they're going to do. Yeah. And so I want to double click back on, um, something that Mike was referring to, which is essentially that, you know, since this is a longstanding existing relationship, you know, the kids are, are hanging out together and everything. Um, how, how, or did it change at all uh, when sort of this this move to adopt the platform and start to modernize these applications come in? Mike, you mentioned that a lot of the applications, kind of the front end customer facing applications that Solstice had been working on for a long time, were running on on you know the kind of portal backend system that was one of the first things to get modernized. So I just want to double click a little bit into that and see, you know, did this. Did this change the relationship at all? How was Solstice impacted by the sort of change to now becoming a customer of this new platform that had come in? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, and I, I think uh, from a technical standpoint, um, obviously Len and, and his team uh, had to go across the business partners at Northern Trust to, to, to sell the investment in, in terms of the platform. But I think uh, the teams on the ground, uh, Solstice ones included, uh, were really the, the, the uh, key messaging partners back to the actual lines of business and, and application uh, owners themselves as to, you know, release by release what the platform is going to provide uh, them and the applications that they own. And so I think that's what really um, was one of the sort of the, the, the changing points of, uh, or turning points, I should say, of the uh, relationship as it relates to uh, Solstice and Northern uh, in the context of the platform was that we were able to educate um, our the application owners, the business owners, on a release by release basis, the some of the functionality that we would be moving off of the legacy platforms into the new platform, and what that was ultimately going to provide for them, and that's what really made it tangible and real for them, and really made them um, sort of get a, a front row seat as to what the platform could provide for them long term, as they saw it in the context of their own application. 
Yeah, and I, th- I think the technical model that was chosen for that was really interesting, and it did show from a business perspective how the new platform could deliver value very, very quickly and could, um, you know, really get that 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 incremental speed to market. I mean, what they chose to do. So the platform that that Mike's been talking about is sort of our, our private or our, our our retail offering, both you know web based and uh, and uh, and mobile based. But it was on, and, and some of it still continues to be on sort of a legacy infrastructure, you know, um, monolithic Java type stuff. And there's always investment into this product. They're always bringing out new products and services, you know, for the for the end user. And the decision was made, you know, starting today, every new piece of uh, uh, functionality that we're going to deliver through this platform is going to be developed on this new platform, uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, it's going to be um, cloud-native architected from the start. It's going to be microservices. Um, it's going to be 12-factor. Um, and we're simply going to call those services from the old legacy application via REST calls, right? So everything that was built that was going to be enhancements to that was built in the new platform. And then, as Mike said, they started pulling off older pieces of functionality and putting them on the new platform as well um, until they sort of got uh, uh, an economies of scale thing going. And then they basically flipped the front door to point to the new platform when they only had a couple of old ancillary services running in legacy. So they're able to keep sort of keep the production line rolling by delivering new products and new capabilities because it was so quick to market while they were modernizing the stuff that was uh, already in existence on the legacy platform. And then again, get to a tipping point where they're able to put the front door into the new platform and just have a couple of old ancillary services running in the background. Okay. What, I'm just curious, like what kind of um, methodologies and other technologies were useful in that transition? I've, I've heard a number of things that I want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just curious as you go through and you're trying to understand like here are the, you know, we're going to build, start with just anything new goes somewhere on a new platform and, and we'll, we'll make those rest calls back to the, to the legacy um, monolith. And then over time, we're going to start to carve off pieces of that monolith until like less and less is still existing there. What, what things help provide visibility into that to be able to understand this is, this is where we should, you know, make those cuts, those those first cuts, that kind of thing. Well, I, I think, and I'll let Mike chime in, but but I think you know the whole the whole agile methodology helps with that because there was a uh, a product owner for this product, and um, that product owner was. Uh, sitting in some new space that we built in one of our buildings in the loop here that was uh, co-located with, uh, you know, the product owners, the developers, uh, the architects, the data people that support this this project. Um, they, the product owner, knew what the new capabilities are that needed to be developed. Uh, they prioritized those capabilities. Um, they sat down with the application development folks from a, from a from an engineering perspective uh, and figured out how that was going to sort of fit in from a UI UX perspective, and then they applied the scalpel, and made the cuts, right? So I think they they kept doing that. They kept prioritizing new things that they could roll out at the same time that they were carving off the old things and bringing them into the new platform, right? So it had to be a combination of a product and business in other words what do you want to offer but then tech in terms of how am i going to do that so i can almost kill two birds with one stone right i can offer new capabilities but i can carve some of the legacy off at the same time and bring it over to the new platform Hmm. yeah exactly i mean i think a lot of these modernization uh, stories um similar to the one that we're referencing here at northern trust uh is is really um a place where you see 
uh, a lot of business folks in the room uh, trying to understand from a feature grouping standpoint, uh, from a priority standpoint, and more importantly, from an architectural impact standpoint, what are the things that we can prioritize uh, and potentially um, you know, sort of lump together in releases where we're delivering new functionality as well as potentially moving away from some of the old uh, functionality as part of just you know the fact that we're touching certain pieces uh, or, or places in the architecture within an application. So a lot of, of meetings sort of cross-functionally between uh, the business owners uh, as well as uh, the corresponding enterprise architects as well as some of the domain architects to really understand how can we group these releases together uh, so we're getting the most bang for the buck and moving as much off of legacy um, as possible. You know what I think is interesting is how everybody's perspective changes. So I'm talking about legacy monolithic Java applications and in practicality, those were probably developed two years ago, right? So the, the pace of change that we're seeing now is just, just, just amazing. And, you know, legacy used to mean 20 year old COBOL. Now it means two year old Java. So that's, that's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, that I definitely would not have assumed that. So, um, yeah, as, as you start, it's just like, you know, when you've been driving down the freeway at, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour, and then you, you kind of pull off and now you're on side streets. It's like, everything feels weirdly distorted and <laughs> you, you risk speeding because you're like, no, 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 I'm used to this faster speed. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah you, you've been living on the freeway speeds now. So, um, I want to also come back to something that you mentioned, Len, you, you mentioned early on that kind of the, the move to public cloud has also been, um, you know, that was a, that was kind of a, a key factor in a lot of the decisions made a couple of years ago. Um, and Mike, you touched on that as well as, as something that's, that's been kind of part of the a change in the work that you've been doing. So let's take a look at that. Cause you mentioned those, those first applications, you know, the team, um, that team of four operators that you, you described Len, they, they set up the platform on two local data centers and yep. that first labs engagement. That's where that got pushed. And now the other end of the bookend, here we are, we've got 600 developers, it's the same four. Um, and you alluded to the fact that things have changed in terms of the, the bank's ability to make use of the public cloud. Yeah, so that's something that we're starting, uh, actually trying to figure out what we want to do and the direction we want to go. So, we're, you know, I, I took over sort of the public cloud uh, enablement and engineering group. Um, what is today? The 21st, 21 days ago. So I took it over uh, on June 1st. So I'm um, just getting my feet feed into this, trying to figure out what, what the business want to do. Again, this is a very business-driven um, organization in terms of how we're going to roll this out. We're getting together some groups of um, sort of architects from each of our business areas that are, are responsible for driving what they want to do in both the private and the public cloud. My belief is, I think, for the next, you know, pick a number, um, five years, six years, three years, something like that, we're going to be in a hybrid salute, uh, a hybrid situation. I don't think we're going to see um, everything in the public cloud, at least from our perspective. Um, there are there are use cases and businesses and data that will remain. Um, in our data center, um, but there, there are some things that uh, we probably would be interested in putting in the public cloud. Now, what architecture we're going to use, uh, how we're going to stage those things, uh, what are we going to do from an enterprise perspective, from a compliance and a governance and a security uh, perspective, that's all 
sort of being worked out as we speak. So, you know, like I said, 21 days into this, um, excited about it, but, uh, I think we got to start, uh, start thinking about it. It's probably something that's inevitable. Okay. With that, how do you think that the, the work that you've done over the last couple of years will help you with that? Oh, I think, I think it, it, it'll help immensely from a variety of, of things. So, so getting a community of developers, um, up to speed on what it means to be uh, a cloud native application is a huge thing, right? So there's a huge difference between doing something for the cloud in a 12 factor architecture than just putting together a, you know, a Java or a .NET or a Python monolith that, that does the business logic, right? So just getting the developers to think in a cloud native manner and to develop code in a cloud native manner, I think is a huge thing to get the rest of the organization, um, to get their heads around, uh, what you need to do to be, uh, to be agile. And, and you can think of that a couple of different ways. You probably do need, you know, an agile methodology when you're doing cloud native development. Um, how, how I can get a uh, faster time to market, how I need to automate these things. The conversations that we had with our control officers and our auditors and our regulators in terms of um, automating some of these manual controls, all of that is multiplied by 100 when I move into the public cloud, I think. So just getting the people to think in that manner, um, getting some of the skill sets that some of these uh, these developers, these engineers, these operators, these infrastructure people need to have, uh, and then getting um, the business and um, the control officers and stuff to get their head around um, sort of what the, the new world is as it relates to cloud, I think, is, is, is very important. I think, I think it was a stepping stone. Uh, in a required stepping stone to get people thinking in the right way. Okay. So, so as you look back, you know, over the last last couple of years, what would you say are your biggest lessons learned? Or maybe even maybe another way to think about it is, if you don't mind me putting on the spot a little bit, what do you think? What would you do differently? One or two things that you've learned that you know, if you if you could do it again, you might have done a little bit differently. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things is I might have had a more controlled rollout. And, and what I mean by that is I think I alluded to the fact that the first couple of teams that we we put through this, you know, the first, you know, half a dozen, dozen teams that we put through this were, were, were very, very well uh, educated in terms of what they needed to do. Um, they were sort of handpicked in the cream of the crop. We did not do a really good job of educating sort of the rest of the developers or, or, or the consulting help that we get that's not Solstice, right? We use a lot of different consulting companies and, you know, offshore companies, things like that, and try to get, get people uh, up to speed and train. Again, what I talked about, what it really means to be a cloud-native application and what it really means to be 12-factor uh, and what it really means to be self-healing and how do I do that and what are the skill sets required, um, I think we should have probably thought about a more formal training program um, as, as, that, as that goes. And, and we're actually having conversations with some of our salespeople from Pivotal on some new things that you guys have, I think, coming down the pipe in terms of how you're going to uh, support organizations like us from a, from a training uh, and, a, and, a, and an engineering perspective, right? So I think we could have probably... Um, done a little bit, a little bit better job with uh, developer training. Um, yeah, that's that's what I would say. And and what role does you know, uh, in terms of determining who your best candidates are from a, from your existing developers to make this transition? Do you look at it like, hey, there's going to be some people that, you know, they're they're eager 
and, and excited to make this transition and others that are, you know, going to be a little bit more challenging to bring along. How do you think about managing your, your team in that sense? Yeah, that's interesting. So I think we have two, I think we have two, two different approaches. One is um, new talent. So uh, we started a program that we call RDP or rotational development program. We started it about three years ago. We started it about a year before Pivotal Cloud Foundry. And basically what we do with that program is we bring in, you know, eight to 10 to 12, uh, college graduate, either engineers or computer science graduates, and we bring them into technology and we give them three rotations in different um, different areas in, in technology for six months at a time. So, for example, uh, one of them could start in a web development team. They could rotate into cybersecurity and then spend uh, the, the last six months of the rotation on uh, in an enterprise architecture group. So, we've for the last three years, we've had... Um, classes that start, you know, after the spring semester is over, um, and we bring in the new blood, right? And and we're looking for people that are self-starters, that, that can learn very, very quickly, that have some of the basics of some of the things we're looking for from their either computer science or computer engineering um, bachelor's degrees. Um, and then we put them after the, uh, the rotations, we put them into positions that both benefit Northern and, and are uh, towards where they want to go in their career. Um, we give these people mentors, right? But we also do this thing that we call reverse mentoring. So, right, if I'm somebody's mentor, you know, I'm trying to teach them the way around Northern Trust and I'm trying to teach them the relationships that we have and, and the core values of the company. But if somebody is reverse mentoring me, they're trying to teach me what a 21-year-old straight out of an engineering school wants to see in an organization when they sit down to work, right? So it's really a two-way street. So that's one of the things we do. The other one, I think what you were referring to is really what do we do with our, our, our you know, our longer term tenured employees and, and what we found, I, I think this must be human nature, but what we found is people tend to self-select, right? So if I go into a group of, of five programmers and they've all got, you know, 15 to 20 years and they say, hey, put up your hands if you want to work on this new exciting cloud-based project. Now, you're going to have to learn a lot of stuff. You're going to have to do your own research. Um, it's all going to be very, very fast-paced. Probably half of them are going to put up their hands, and the other half are going to go work on um, the mainframe stuff that we still need and we still have and we still need talented people to work on. So we haven't had very, very many situations where either somebody has signed up for it and, and failed or somebody uh you know where we thought somebody was going to be you know up, up for the challenge and they haven't really worked out it's it, self-selecting i think tends to work in an organization where you really need both skill sets like if we were just something if we were a cloud only organization self-selecting wouldn't work but we still have a large legacy structure of of mainframes and as400s and, and you know java monolith and net and oracle and all this other stuff and we need those people and talented people there to support and to run those applications as well yeah, that that jives with what we've heard from other other folks like uh, John Osborne over at Great American Insurance Company, um, specifically calling out, you know, do do the volunteer model as long as you can because yeah. you get folks who are really hungry to to do that and to make these changes. So, um, what's interesting is like thinking about your comment about you know really picking um, handpicking the folks to go into those first labs models mm -hmm. and then kind of coming back and having to figure out how to like how to bring this to the rest of the organization um you know there's there's a lot of different ways to approach that so it's great to hear you sort of share your lessons learned on that because i think that's something that 
a lot of folks um, are, are eager to, to understand how to take those first steps uh, effectively. You know, and I think the other thing to consider for an enterprise like us is, you know, over the past, what, 15 or 20 years, companies like ours have sort of commoditized the engineer or the developer, right? I mean, everybody that we hired uh, over those 10 years, you know, either had to be an architect or an analyst or something because, you know, we were doing um, a lot of offshore development at the time, right? And, and I think we're trying to pull that back now because the skill sets that we're looking for um, and, and the quality of the people that we need, I think, are better suited for uh, Northern Trust uh, employees or uh, close development partners, you know, like Solstice and others. So, um, what we ended up with was a lot of you know, 10 and 15 year um, uh, experienced tenured people that were more at the higher level. So, you know, bringing in these these rotational development programs and, and sort of reconstituting that that programmer sort of engineer level, I think is very important to us. So, you know, over the past three years, we've probably brought in, you know, 40 or 50 new new graduates, fresh blood into that, into that, uh, into that sort of engineering layer within the hierarchies that we have. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's really interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. I was just going to comment. I, I, really, I like the idea of the, uh, the reverse mentorship, mm -hmm. um, you know, just because somebody's, you know, fresh out of college doesn't mean they, they don't have, you know, some, some great perspectives to offer. Uh, and, and of course, you know, as, as the technology landscape evolves, you know, it's going to be that fresh blood that's going to be really critical, uh, you know, to, to, to at least in part to the evolution of your, your organization and taking advantage of, of these opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this year, for the first time, we brought in four of these uh, rotational development program um, participants for infrastructure alone. So, you know, we're going to have them working like within my team on public and private cloud and DevOps. You know, we're going to have them working on infrastructure automation. We're going to have them working on uh, infrastructure analytics and predictive analytics from an infrastructure perspective, where in the past years, it's really been targeted toward um, application development. We've expanded it now into engineering and infrastructure and DevOps and, and a whole bunch of other um, bunch of other uh, skill sets uh, within technology. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as we're, we're getting a little bit close on time, but I would love to, to touch on if you could if you could help us translate all, all the great stuff you've been working on, all the things we've talked about today uh, to, you know, the business goals, uh, you know, the, the, the larger strategic business goals of Northern Trust. How do you see all the great work that you're doing, uh, you know, connecting to those to those objectives? Well, I, I would say there's a couple of things, you know, so, you know, our competitors, the Northern Trust competitors, you know, used to be the other big banks, you know, and we were all sort of in the same ballpark. Um, I think what we're seeing is competition from uh, startups and fintechs and things like that now as well. So we're not just competing with, you know, the other big box banks, you know, either here on Wall Street or wherever they happen to be, you know, we're competing with, you know, venture capital funded companies in Silicon Valley and in other places around the world that are using these same tools and techniques in order to deliver product faster and more reliably uh, and more scalably, right? So I think that we have to up our game in terms of how we deliver and envision product in order to keep up uh, and hopefully surpass those kind of companies. Now, the way that I see it, it's easier for someone like the Northern Trust 
to learn how to do cloud native development and agile methodologies than it is for a four person startup in Silicon Valley to have 130 years of financial services experience. Right. So um, I think that we are well positioned to uh, compete there, um, but it's going to need some tweaks to. Um, and when I say culture, that that's kind of a loaded word because culture to me is a combination of things like ethics and morality and thought process uh, with process and procedure. So we need to change our process and procedure and we need to keep our ethics and morality in the soul of the company. But I think that, you know, we are, we are well positioned to do that. So from a business perspective, it, it is, it is it's time to market, um, you know, in quality deliverables and modern and interesting uh, user interfaces and things like that. I mean, it's what people are used to in their personal lives that we have to deliver uh, from a professional perspective. So on, on that note, kind of switching now just to my, my kind of last question for you. I'm not going to promise that, but I'm going to say that. Um, Fair enough. I don't know when like another question comes up. Um, what, you know, that was a great kind of tie into the, to the business schools, but what are you personally most proud of? I think it is that I think it is the, the sort of the I, I for for my own personal uh, profession and I know I think Mike probably knows this but maybe no one else but I've I've been at the Northern Trust for 36 years right so this was my first year uh, my first job out of college I like to tell people I started when I was 12 I just <laughs> think it's old. I was just a lot. No, but I mean, I, I had a variety. I mean, as you can imagine, what was technology like 36 years ago? I started as an assembler language programmer. So I've made, I've had 15 different jobs in those time periods from, you know, language development to uh, some of our first personal computer-based applications in DOS to you know, meeting some of the portal teams to enterprise architecture and now into cloud. I think, I think... I think in the private cloud thing, what we're what this conversation is targeted on, it's the amount of change in the fastest amount of time that I have ever seen in my 36 years. Right, so it may not seem like much to uh, outside people looking in, but to make that much progress on the platform in a two-year period, um, based on what I know about uh, things that have happened in the past, is just an extraordinary amount of change that was sort of rippled across the entire technology organization. So I think that's probably what I'm most proud of. And I'm expecting that or more in the next two to three years as well, as things just progress and change and, uh, uh, and, and as we look forward. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate how 36 years of perspective on that um, really says something. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, where can folks kind of um, keep tabs on you or the team and learn more about the engineering uh, opportunities at Northern Trust? Well, obviously LinkedIn, right? Um, we've got a couple of uh, opportunities out there already. Uh, we're looking for some, some, new, some new people in the, uh, in the public cloud world, my new world. Um, we're looking for a couple of new people uh, from a leadership perspective there. Um, and then, you know, certainly my own, uh, my own LinkedIn, uh, stuff. You can take a look at, uh, northerntrust.com. We've got a brand new spanking, shiny new website as of uh, a few days ago or a week or so ago. So, uh, there's a lot of information out there, all the careers and everything and all the opportunities to listed. And, um, uh, yeah, I would say that would be the way to go. Wonderful. We'll include that in the show notes. It was great to talk to you. Great to catch up with you, Mike, as well. 
Um, thank you so much yeah. for joining. Very good. My pleasure. We'll see you guys. Bye-bye.